In a year where large-scale events have been cancelled or postponed, the biggest hole in the calendar is the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, which should have just wrapped, but instead will have to wait another year. But that doesn't mean that all work has ground to a halt. Just a hop, skip and a jump away on the edge of Lake Geneva in Lausanne, the International Olympic Committee has been busy in its new headquarters, Olympic House, designed by Danish architecture firm 3XN. They're not just occupied with rescheduling this year's competition, but are also looking ahead to Beijing, Paris, Milan and Los Angeles over the coming years, hopefully with fewer interruptions. One key member of the team is Marie Salois d'Ambreville, Director of Corporate and Sustainable Development, who I'm talking to today. She tells me about how the IOC works with different places to meet their specific social and sustainable goals when it comes to planning a host city, and how they think about their legacy too. And we talk about the importance of a good HQ that reflects the brand's core values by thinking about sustainability, communication, and keeping the team active. This is a sports organization after all. You're listening to The Chiefs. I'm Tyler Brule. First, very good uh, to talk to you today and, uh, and welcome to The Chiefs. I have had the good fortune of visiting your new headquarters and visiting uh, in a run-up and, and at a time, of course, when there was great excitement. Uh, we should have been now really sort of feeling the afterglow of, of what would have been Tokyo. It remains to be seen what happens. But I want to rewind a little bit because when you go to your and you visit your new headquarters uh, in uh, in Lausanne, there's something about it. And, and, and I'll start by sort of saying I described it to, to a colleague. I said, this was a building uh, that I visited. And of course, when you're your own entrepreneur and you're running your own company, uh, you often think that this is, you know, this is going to be your, your end story. This is going to be the place where you live out your working years. But I said, actually, I said, when I went to the IOC's new headquarters, I said, this is a place I could see myself working. Uh, and, and there was something that you've managed to achieve there, which is, of course, a home for one of the world's most recognized brands uh, and, and institutions. But at the same time, you've delivered something which is, I'm not going to call it humble, but there is a level of humility to it. Um, there's an understatement uh, to it. And Maybe we could just start by, by talking about um, the home and your mission in helping create it. As you said, Olympic House is, is actually more than a building. It's a, a project of change. Uh, as you reminded us, uh, us, we had three objectives. So first was really to create a permanent home for the Olympic movement, which would be highly symbolic uh, and welcoming to everyone, wherever uh, they are, you know, from uh, an athlete, uh, a simple citizen, a CEO from a multinational or representative of a national Olympic committee from in, coming from the Pacific Islands. So that was a challenge in itself. But in addition to this objective, we had to uh, create a fit-for-purpose working environment for about 500 people uh, were originally scattered across four locations. And here we wanted to put emphasis on collaboration and flexibility. And last but not least, we had a third objective, which was really uh, for this building to uh, help us walk the talk in terms of sustainability and strengthen our credibility. So the challenge was not to meet one of these objectives, but actually the three together without compromising one of them. And that was really where the uh, difficulties lied. So basically how we uh, did that, uh, we... Uh, we uh, really had these three objectives completely embedded in our decision-making process from the very early stages. And they were shared throughout the organization from the political level all the way you know, throughout the organization. I think this is one of the key success factors. We have been very bold from the beginning. We have set the bar high, including in sustainability. 
And you know, sometimes people say, you know, why should you have certification? Why is it important? I feel it was extremely important to have formal certification we wanted to achieve. Because the decision was no longer about, you know, uh, what we should accomplish, but how we should accomplish it. And this really helped, um, you know, um, foster the energy on the implementation. The second thing that I think um, was a key success factor is that we looked at all these three objectives in a very holistic manner. So if, again, we take sustainability, we really have approached sustainability in a very broad sense. So not only on energy efficiency, obviously the building is powered by renewable energy, uh, we are uh, reducing by 50% our energy consumption. We have solar panels on the, on, on the roof. We are using the uh, water from the lake to cool the building. But this is kind of you know, mainstream sustainability. But we really looked at sustainability across all dimensions. So how we were integrating in the park in which we are, which is a very popular park where people sun bath and barbecue and practice sport. How we uh, develop landscaping, you know, for a building to smoothly integrate uh, within the surroundings. How we develop a mobility concept that is really multimodal. So here we went quite far. Not only we gave incentives for people to come with by bike or by public transportation, but we also, uh, you know, add people pay their uh, car places uh, per use, and we also develop an hydrogen station to power a corporate fleet. So we also worked on waste management and something where we have been very far, I feel, is user comfort. Because you said yourself that you felt very well in the building. And you know what? How could you make people feel well in a building where they come from so many different backgrounds? What is unique to all of us? It's quality of space. And how you get that, get that is really, I mean, providing hair quality, natural light, quality of use. So we worked a lot on this, as well as mobility within the building because we have a sport organization. And for us, it was very important that every day when you come to the office, you would at least walk the minimum that you need to remain fit within a day. So we really uh, foster internal mobility. So all this, you know, you saw, see that uh, sustainability is really embedded throughout the whole approach. And the last dimension was for us extremely important is collaboration. We would not have achieved that without innovative collaboration, without thinking out of the box, thanks to our collective intelligence. We have done that with our staff. We had 50 ambassadors throughout the organization who have been involved in every step of the project, including in the brief that was given to the architect. So they were involved before the choice of the architect. We have also been able to reuse 95% of some of our former buildings that we had to deconstruct. Thanks to a super creative approach we have developed with 25 students from the university nearby that had a week to test all the materials of the buildings and come up with creative ideas on how to reuse these materials. And the way we did that is basically we have actually used all the concrete, we have crushed it on site and we have reused it in the foundation of Olympic House. We have you know, dismantled the electric appliances and we have given that to uh, the school nearby for them to train apprenticeship. We have given the sanitation, sanitaries to uh, an association that help people go back to employment, etc. And uh, this would not have been achieved without very uh, innovative collaboration. I'm curious to know when you looked at the plans, and of course, uh, you're working with a, an extraordinary architecture firm, uh, 3XN, um, out, of, out of Denmark, uh, who, who've done really exceptional uh, projects. But one of the striking things when you, you enter the building and uh, you're approaching reception is 
and this is at least in, in, for me, I was I was drawn to this this wonderful uh, wooden staircase um, that that's that's really stands sort of you know front and front and center, um, and and of course, as you said, is is a big part of of course you know intercommunication in the building, getting people to of course uh, you know go up and down stairs. Uh, was that sort of a fundamental to it? Uh, was it was this something that was brought to you by the architects, or was it part of the brief that you said, look at we've looked at we've we've done great benchmarking around the world, really good buildings, uh, do an excellent job of of course um, you know putting staircases at, at the center of, um, of of the working community. Um, how did that come about as, as such a strong symbol and defining part of the of, of Olympic House? So in a brief, we were very clear to the architect, uh, 3XN, as well as all the others who had developed a concept, that we wanted, again, to achieve symbolism and functionality and sustainability. And so why we chose 3XN is because they were really the ones that understood bet- the best how to combine these various factors. And they came with the idea of the staircase because, you know, it was both symbolic, functional and sustainable. When you take these stairs, obviously, they remind you of the five uh, rings of the Olympic symbol. It's obvious, but it's not in your face. You know, it's symbolic, but it's not ostentatious. It's made of wood, it's one color, uh, but obviously it's very symbolic. But it's also very functional, because when you walk the stairs, if you have come, you know, it's very smooth, because every step is quite small. So it's really uh, allowing you to speak and discuss with your colleagues as you go up the stairs. And last but not least, you know, this staircase has been made by a local uh, organization, you know, and as most of what we have done within the the building, 80% of everything that was built is coming from 50 kilometers around us. So it's also a proof of sustainability and it's made of, you know, oak, which is certified. So it's highly symbolic, functional, and sustainable. You look at your title, you have director, you have corporate development in your title, you have brand, and you have sustainability, uh, all under the IOC uh, umbrella. If I go back to, to the brief, and maybe even before the brief, the challenges that you had to consider, particularly when we, when we think about brand, um, and, and knowing many of the challenges, uh, many of the scandals that have surrounded uh, the IOC over, over the years, was that also part of the consideration? What message would Olympic House deliver? Uh, would it transmit to, of course, your local community in, in Lausanne, uh, to, of course, people in your host country, Switzerland, to corporate visitors from around the world? I'd love to just hear about the process because what struck me as well is that I felt this is a building which does hit all the right notes. You could have gone for something which was, you know, and and, and you could still respect all of the elements you talk about, all of the sustainability components. You could have built all of those things in, but you could have had a much more showy, ostentatious outcome. So what what was the the tone um that you had to convey to the various firms who who you who are pitching for this project um to to carry out the the vision which you which you i think you've achieved it very well so what we wanted is really to create an open uh, transparent and uh, respectful um house uh that will give a sense of unity and diversity because as I was telling you, I mean, our visitors are coming from all spectrum. I mean, from all backgrounds, from all ages, from all geographies. And this was very important for us to find the common denominator that will uh, 
allow everyone to feel at ease and at once they will understand they are in the Olympic house. So it will be Olympic, but in a subtle way, not in their face. And this is why also you find this staircase, which reminds of the Olympic symbol that unites all of us. But also you have an audiovisual experience that uh, shows uh, you, you know, uh, the fact that the Olympic Games are over a century old and uh, are timeless. And you have also an experience about the Olympic movement, which shows that we are active everywhere in the world, you know, uh, every day of the year. And sometimes, you know, people don't know this because they know more of the Olympic Games. And it was very important for us to remind everyone that uh, we are permanent movement. And the last experience you get in the Agora is uh, the athlete in action. And this was also for us very important to put the athletes at the heart of a building like they are at the heart of the Olympic movement. So you see that we try to uh, convey our messages, but in a very subtle, non-ostentatious manner and uh, offer a qualitative environment in which everybody will feel at ease, whatever their culture. Now, when you look at the role that, that of course, uh, the IOC uh, plays with, with host cities and, and host nations, how has that evolved? Because if I was in Tokyo just um, some months ago when we were still able to uh, to fly to Tokyo uh, without quarantines, etc., and there I, I saw, of course, um, an, an extraordinary um, stadium, uh, which... Of course, if we were to believe the press releases and everything is incredibly sustainable. It's a very, it's a beautiful, um, I would almost call it a compliment uh, to, of course, uh, yeah, sitting in sort of the, the Aoyama Harajuku part of, of the city, that there is this, this true sense of, okay, yes, it has presence. Uh, but in the same way that you, that you talk about, of course, Olympic House, uh, Marie, that, yeah, there's the, you, you have this wonderful relationship with, with Lausanne, the lake, your surrounding areas. This has also been achieved, uh, of course, with the, with the stadium uh, in, in Tokyo. How involved uh, are you? How involved is the IOC in creating a future brief in terms of a sustainability message, a brand message? Because, of course, the Japanese Olympic Committee can go off and do probably many things on their own. Uh, but at the same time, are there certain codes now that at least you want to see that you're trying to to create some types of barriers and hopefully pleasant ones that ensure that you're really coming good on this notion of legacy? Yes, thank you. Uh, it's always good to look uh, back at history, you know, uh, to, uh, to see what you need to do for the future. And uh, I mean, you mentioned Montreal. Actually, it's interesting because despite all the difficulties, when you go back now to the Olympic Park, it's actually a success many years later, but it's a success. But when you look at uh, uh, editions of the Olympic Games uh, from the past and which one have been the most successful and have created the longer uh, and most positive benefits, you uh, see that uh, these editions have always something in common, that they have put legacy at the heart of their vision from the early stage, and they have put a governance in place in order to maintain and sustain this legacy over time, which is resilient to political change. So how do we actually make sure that we learn from this and we engage in a discussion with a future host in the most constructive manner? Um, basically, we have now a dialogue phase during which we actually engage with cities and we change completely the, 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 the way we engage. We no longer ask cities or hosts, you know, what they can do for the Olympic Games, but what the Olympic Games can do for them and for their territories. So there are some core elements, you know, that are common to all editions that make the uniqueness of the Games. 
So you have the core sport program, the field of play, clean venues, the Olympic Village, opening and closing ceremonies. All these elements make the games more than just an addition of sport competitions, but really a unique experience for the athletes and a peaceful celebration of humanity. So these are the core elements. But we also state very clearly our ambition that the Olympic Games serve as a catalyst for sustainable development. And recently, maybe you have followed, the executive board of the IOC has taken an important decision to uh, say that the Olympic Games should transition from being carbon neutral to being climate positive by 2030, which is a very bold ambition. But by setting this you know, ambition and setting this uh, very high, it forces you know, all the um, cities or hosts with whom we dialogue to find strategic to get there. And everyone will have a different way to get there. You know, uh, typically Paris will be a critical milestone because it will be the first edition to be aligned with the Paris Agreement. And they are aiming at reducing their footprint by half compared to former Olympic Games, which is huge. Um, so apart from this core element and this ambition, it's all about flexibility and co-creation. So the, the host, for instance, can decide you know, whether they deliver through one city, several cities, like Milano-Cortina, a region, even if you know, they cooperate with another country, maybe, for some competition. So it's much... I mean, it's all about flexibility. And, you know, they decide whether they need additional venues or not. Sometimes for them, it's better to reuse existing venues. And only in specific case, they will build new venues because they have long-term needs. And we really discuss with them to make sure that if they build something, it will serve long-term objectives. So every city is looking at it differently. Uh, you mentioned Tokyo. You know, they use a lot of existing venues. They have also creating a beautiful stadium. I have actually the privilege to know Kengo Kuma because he was in a jury for the Olympic House. Um, but they also look at re revitalizing the waterfront. In Paris, they are not going to build a lot of venues. They are going to build an Olympic aquatic center that will benefit the local population in a suburb where young people in majority do not know how to swim. So for them, it's not just a new venue, but it's a social objective that they are trying to reach. And the nearby village, which is very close, will also be an example of you know, sustainable urban development. Because their objective is to create the greater Paris, where they connect better you know, Paris to the suburbs, and where the suburbs benefit from upgraded services. But if you look even further in the, to the future, you have a very different approach again for Los Angeles 2028. Here, they have a radical reuse approach. So not a single permanent venue will be built. And actually, it's funny to see that the Coliseum, which was originally built for the Games in 1932, which were used or a second times in the Games in 1984, will be used for the third time in 2028. So really, I mean, the way we work is to engage as early as possible with the host, which can be a city or region or several cities, with a dis in a discussion where we see and we discussed how the games can help them in their sustainable development in their local context. And then something also we really um, emphasize is the need to put in place a legacy body, which can take different forms, it could be private, public, it can be several entities, but a legacy entity that will sustain uh, this sustainable development over time. 
because we know that if we, if we stop working with the host as, as soon as the organizing committee is dissolved, you know, we may not uh, look at legacy in the long run. So it's very important that we have also this governance in place before the Olympic Games end. Marie, I'm curious because we're having this conversation uh, at, at a very interesting time, and I'm sure a lot of listeners are, are sitting uh, back waiting uh, for when we're going to address uh, the very large uh, elephant um, in, in the room. But before we, before we get to that question, uh, we've spoken a lot about architecture. We've spoken about um, design thinking. Uh, now I'm sort of brought to leadership. You know, we're both, we're sitting at opposite ends of the country. You're in Lausanne. I'm speaking to you from Zurich at the moment. We've seen over the last, well, last months, but particularly over the last few days, some very, um, I would say, positive, aggressive thinking from the, the government in, in Bern when you think about leadership, uh, where the Swiss government has really come out um, at a federal level and are pretty much saying, we just, we need to just learn to live with this uh, virus um, and and of course, we've heard many leaders say that, um, but Switzerland's also taking the position, we just need to move on now um, as well. We, we can talk about uh, vaccines all we want, but until that happens, we have to um, get moving and uh, every aspect of, of society. Uh, and, and, and that, of course, is talking about the economy and culture and sport has to um, get back into a place where we have civic engagement um, and and that we we have a restoration of of the metabolism of, of a nation and much of that of course much of the discussion in Switzerland has been around sport and and, and big venues um, so before we we talk about uh, about Tokyo I'm interested about the the guidance what is the IOC doing right now uh, in terms of helping think through how do we bring together um, mass groups of, of individuals uh, at a moment where we, in, in, in some corners of the world we see that, yeah, uh, people are being a little bit more aggressive. They have one approach. And then we see, we see full societies, which are incredibly risk averse. And, and this is certainly a, a case with your um, next host nation. Japan is a very risk averse society. Is this a, a big program and project uh, within the IOC at the moment to think this through? Or do you really let everybody else just get on with it and you have to just be there to administer uh, rather than, yeah, coax and provoke? <laughs> so, again, you know, going back in time, when we launched the uh, Olympic Agenda 2020, you know, as early as 20, um, uh, 2014, the IOC president, Thomas Barr, had a motto, to change or to be changed. And this motto is actually written on a wall of the Olympic House, you know, on very near his office. And this motto is uh, still extremely important for us in time of uh, uncertainty and still guide us. So we are working on two uh, levels. First is today, you know, as we speak, we actually are working as an organization to ensure the continuity of our operation. And here we have been extremely lucky to be able to benefit from, you know, a early thinking and the fact that we have invested quite early in digital technology because we have been able to uh, really ensure the continuity of our operation from day one. So we are operational and we are working at full speed. We also uh, work very closely, obviously, with organizers of the Olympic Games. And you mentioned our friends from Japan. You know, it was a very bold and historic decision that we made to postpone by a year the Olympic Games Tokyo 2020. 
And it was a decision we made after a wide consultation with all the stakeholders. So the whole Olympic movement was behind this, this choice. And now we are working very hard with them, with their culture, with our culture, to work on different scenarios to make sure that the games will happen and will be at the end a light at the end of the tunnel and a symbol of recovery for the global community. And in terms of leadership, I think this is what we bring, you know, some hope. And this is why the games are so important. You know, we may have to tweak it. We have to maybe to make adjustment in the implementation. But the fact that the games could be the light at the end of the tunnel is a very symbolic element. And uh, we work also on a third level as leader of the Olympic movement. You know, our priority was really to sustain the Olympic movement. As you said, I mean, many competitions have stopped. So many, you know, international federations do not get their revenue. National Olympic Committee, you know, will have to wait another year to send their athletes to the Games. So we had to actually mobilize money, you know, to support them. And we funded 100 million USD uh, to make sure that they could sustain their operation. So that's actually for the current state, you know, immediate actions. But at the same time, like everyone else, you know, we are looking at the impact of COVID, you know, on our world and how we need to address these new challenges and opportunities for the future. And this is basically the work we have started uh, doing and that we will be presenting to our executive board by the end of the year uh, that will form, if you wish, um, the next step of a strategic roadmap. And in that respect, I feel we, we don't need to be afraid of risk or uncertainty, but we need to be afraid of opportunities missed. So there are opportunities in times of crisis, and these are the opportunities we want to identify and, and uh, grasp, you know, for the entire Olympic movement. So we are working at two pace. One is really, you know, the immediate action we need to take, like everyone else, to cope with uncertainty and the crisis. And the second is a more midterm, if you wish, how we address uh, the challenge and opportunities that uh, come from this crisis. Extremely positive words. And uh, I, I do hope, of course, we meet uh, well before then. Uh, but, uh, but it would be great to see you in Tokyo. One thing that I think a lot of people are wondering, what happens to the Olympic schedule now? And I fully uh, believe uh, that Tokyo will happen uh, next year. Does it get compressed or does everything get pushed back a year? Or do you, do you, do you move back to then being on an even schedule of, of every two years? What happens now? So uh, apart from the postponement by one year of Tokyo 2020, nothing changes. So Tokyo 2020 will happen in one year. Uh, exactly. Uh, one, uh, there is one day difference with the original schedule. And then we would have Beijing 2022. And then we will have Paris 2024. And then Milano Cortina 2026 and Los Angeles 2028 on exactly the same schedule that was planned. Very encouraging and, and excellent to hear. Uh, listen, uh, I, it was an absolute delight uh, to, to speak to you and uh, we look, uh, look forward to catching up, hopefully uh, in your lovely headquarters in Lausanne uh, very soon. My thanks to Marie Salois d'Ambreville for joining us for this week's episode of The Chiefs. And don't forget, The Chiefs Conference is coming up on September 17th at the storied Souvretta House in St. Moritz. Join us and a host of industry leaders for solution-driven thinking and a fresh perspective. Head to monocle.com to find out more. This episode of The Chiefs was produced by Paige Reynolds and Holly Fisher. I'm Tyler Brulé. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>